Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We've got an extra episode this week because Adam Tooze is in town and we always like to catch up with him on his latest thinking. And today we're going to be talking about China, America and trade wars. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So for once, we're recording this on a Friday morning, not a Wednesday morning. Last night, Donald Trump imposed the latest round of sanctions on China. Adam, we don't know where this is heading, even over the weekend. But what for you is is at stake here? Where's where's the big risk? Well, I think there are different levels. There's the spectacle of the trade war that Trump needs to keep rolling onwards. This is a man who has promised to deliver a mega deal, the biggest deal ever with the Chinese. And that's one dynamic that's driving this. There are specific issues over which the Chinese and the Americans are wrangling about levels of Chinese subsidy, intellectual property right protection and so on. That's another dimension. But in the background, I think, is lurking now a momentum shift on the American side, which points us much more towards a sort of, not a new Cold War, I don't find that analogy all that helpful, precisely because the economic relationships are so entangled. But the assertion, if you like, of a security policy agenda over the top of economic policy. And I think that's the zone where the tension is least easily reconciled and where we can see a real qualitative shift from the two decades of the 90s and the early 2000s, where it was a kind of economic free-for-all, really. In the spectacle, as I understand it, part of what we've been through now is a kind of dance where Trump sabre rattles a bit, the markets swoon a bit. Donald Trump does not like it when the markets swoon because he measures the virility of his presidency by the level of the Dow Jones, and then he backs off a bit. But even in that, there's a big risk with all of those kind of dances that you you take a step too far, right? And and we may be close to that. Well, I mean, you know, the markets are at a high level, relatively speaking. So this may simply be compounding an adjustment that might be coming in any case. But I agree with that diagnosis that there's three or four different constituencies that are being played to at once, security policy, actual trade agendas, the American electorate, and then absolutely Wall Street and the gyrations of the S&P 500 are a key regulating factor. And the markets are responding with extraordinary sensitivity to this flow of news, even though if you look at the hard numbers of you know, revenue generated by American companies in China, the, the immediate link is not obvious. There's something atmospheric that's driving this as well, because it's not clear that the economics by itself, company by company, really explain the reactions in, this, in the stock market. I think that the other interesting thing that's going on, though, is, is that Trump seems to think, who knows what he actually thinks, but he, he seems to think he can influence Chinese markets, the Chinese yes. stock market, very negatively. And thus far, at least, there has been more damage done there than there has on Wall Street. And some people even think that he's kind of like deliberately putting out good news about the prospects of the trade deal when the New York markets are open, and then it becomes bad news when the Chinese markets are open. And I do think that that China's vulnerability on the financial markets is actually greater than the United States vulnerability, or at least that it has been thus far. The other thing I would say is is that it did seem, from the language that Trump himself was using, that until sort of the end of last week, that the direction of travel was towards a deal. A right? deal. Yeah. 
And then that is what has fallen away. And it seems to be the case that the Chinese government has sent back a, a draft of the treaty with lots of things that they, the Americans have previously thought that they would, had agreed to, yeah. crossed out in red lines. So I mean, assuming that that is correct, and there was a, quite a substantial Reuters story on that, it does seem that the Chinese position actually might be what's shaped what's happened in the last week rather yeah. than Trump having a change of tack. The other dimension to this, which I think is fascinating, follows directly on from that, is the the response of the Fed to weakness in China, because that runs in a different direction. I was quite surprised to see this. I thought we'd see a rather different tone from the Fed under Powell than we saw from Yellen in 2015. But it was the same playbook, basically, that, that when there was that accumulation of very bad news, both from the US and China and the Eurozone over the winter, the Fed you know, backed away from tightening in a way which deliberately acknowledged global factors as part of American monetary policy calculus. So bits of the American state apparatus which face the world economy in different ways are responding to these pressures in their own way following their own logics. It's not clear to me yet how the Fed really fits with the trade war security policy agenda which the Trump administration seems to be developing. And it's also the case obviously as well that, that Trump wants the Fed to make an interest rate um, cut. Anyway, so in a sense it, it, play, doesn't it? it plays into, into his hands in that way. Um, but it's supportive of China, broadly speaking, that, that policy, because in cyclical terms, so much of the global demand, so much of the global economy now does depend on China's demand. And is it possible to say there are two fault lines here? So one of which is the one you describe, which is economic political between the Fed's view of the risk for the global economy and, and Trump's sort of politicization of all of those risks, including there was a period where he was politicizing Fed appointments. He's backed away from them. They was going to put a couple of people on the Fed that Well it wasn't it wasn't yeah, it wasn't him. I mean it's Congress. The Republicans just said they wouldn't play right. ball. Exactly. There's this avert strand of yes. Trumpism which is about yeah. politicizing the Fed. And then there's the more, I suppose, familiar security economic fault line, which is that at a certain point what matters are not America's economic interests, there's an underlying set of interests here, which are security interests. Which of those is the one where you think there's the biggest risk for a breakdown? Oh, from the security policy side, that's the key shift. And I, I would stress the novelty of that. America has not been pursuing a security policy-led agenda towards China consistently for quite a long time. Because all the way back to the 70s, right, China was identified as a key strategic asset in counterbalancing the Soviet Union. There were moments in the 90s where over Taiwan and, and human rights post Tiananmen, the, the Clinton administration's position was a little bit more jaundiced. But generally speaking, those kind of concerns have been put very far back on the American agenda. And that's a major shift that we're seeing now, where it's not obvious that private corporations are really free to pursue. I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? The supply chain model that they developed was deep integration with China. Apple doesn't have a business plan that we're aware of for global manufacturing that doesn't rely on China. How that then fits within a new security policy-dominated agenda is very, is very opaque. I think the only thing I would slightly disagree about is, is in the 70s, I think it is a security agenda. Accommodation with China or the approach to China is all about balancing the Soviet Union. And, yeah. it, and it hasn't got an economic foundation. I mean, Kissinger's not interested in economic... There isn't really economic relations to be had with Mao's China. China's too poor. Yeah, exactly. and, and anyway, is, is that what happens then is, is that in the early 90s after Tiananmen, there is a kind of like as China has, has moved down a path of economic development, saying, actually, no, we are going to put 
the problems of China, which at that time was expressed in terms of human rights rather than China's rising power, that is going to have primacy. And then that broke down and broke down under Clinton. And then the Clinton administration, sort of about halfway in, basically embraced uh, we are going to take China into the supposedly liberal international economic order and in some sense tame its security potential by economic interdependence. And that is the judgment, I think, now that the American political class, not just Trump, but most of the American political class has really retreated from. Yeah, it goes deep. I mean, we are American universities now are receiving lists of blacklisted Chinese academic institutions. It was part of this unverified entities list that the Commerce Department issued, which is the basis on which the chip manufacturers are pulling back from engagement with China. And Columbia University sent around a memo a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, obviously it doesn't affect somebody working in the humanities, but it was sent to all heads of institutes and whatever. This extraordinary list of major Chinese research facilities with which we you know, are no longer allowed to engage in exchange of sensitive software or deep intellectual and academic collaboration. So this is going deep into the fabric of American power and knowledge, the entire apparatus of the technical military industrial complex. MIT announced publicly that it was reconsidering its major research partnerships. So that agenda is really is, uh, has a huge momentum, as Helen was saying. To go back to what you said a moment ago, if it's the case that Apple does not have a business model if these trading relationships break down, and Apple is a nearly or roughly trillion dollar capitalized business, one would expect incredibly heavy lobbying to be going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Presumably it is, but is this administration, relatively speaking, more impervious than others? I think this is the political economy question. Like, Is this an instance of a of an administration which implausibly has a degree of autonomy. Um, or even on some accounts, this is probably not the right word, is less corrupt. I mean, or less corruptible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds uh, mad to say it. Exactly. But. But, or have we actually seen a shift in the position of major elements of American capital? Which is another story that you do get. The reportage that I've read from inside the White House and the circuit in D.C. suggests there just hasn't been the kind of pushback that one would have anticipated. And there's a re-evaluation going on, I think, on the part of American business of exactly how much to expect from China in future. There are certain firms which either because of supply chain, as in the case of Apple, or simply the size of the market, like in cars, that really don't have much option but to have a China policy. But there's also the Google route that you can go down, which is you can pull out of course, you can still then dally around with the idea of going back in. You can have a little research group working on a, you know, a Chinese browser, but fundamentally detach your business model from China. I think, I, so that, I think, is, the, to me, the unresolved question of this moment. Is the Trump administration autonomous or has there, in fact, been a, a shift in position? But I think the other thing that is going on that makes it slightly different than it might otherwise have been is, is that a lot of the administration's concerns and the things that they've been pushing most strongly on in these trade negotiations are actually about what they call technology theft and so lots of the companies actually are also unhappy with what's going on in China as well now they might have previously come to the conclusion that it's the price that you pay for doing business in China and there isn't any retreat from it but I think they have in some sense being encouraged to think that this doesn't have to be the way it is And that from their point of view, the best outcome would actually be for Trump to be able to strike a deal that cut down on these practices, which the companies and the administration are so 
unhappy with and then you can go back to something that won't be like it was entirely in the past because there will always be more of a risk attached to your supply chain being in China but the things that were hurting them will have been taken out of the picture. And there's even deeper, this is going to sound a bit pretentious, an even deeper question here which is is it possibly the case that in Silicon Valley particularly say Google they have an idea of the world where they are meant to be impervious to some of this. I mean, one of the reasons that they're not lobbying is that deep down inside, they believe they're above it. I mean, Mm. that their version of 21st century capitalism is, as you described, not so vulnerable because somehow we've moved on to another stage. I mean, whether that's true or not, is it possible that some of them think like that? After all, it was only a few years ago where they didn't really think they needed to do much lobbying because they were above that. Yeah, you probably have to break down the tech blob, right, and distinguish between different elements within that. Because Apple is unusual in that it's a huge giant. I mean, it's a close to a car company than it is. Yeah, in terms of making the iPhones, it is. Whereas the sort of Facebooks of this world don't have a huge stake in China because they're excluded from it. Um, They may be interested in the technologies that that emerge out of that, and they may regard Chinese AI development, for instance, as a huge competitive threat. But I take your point about the idea that Silicon Valley has a vision of the 21st century so integrated and you know so dominant that in a sense these small movements of politics, you know, like Tim Cook likes to say, it's political bullshit. That's the kind of nonsense that gets in the way of their globalising vision. And do you feel, as a historian, that those people tend to get bitten on the arse? I, I yeah, I feel that that's not. But a there's another leading, leading question. The, the, the current moment, right? The idea that they can stand above the kind of great power confrontation which the American security policy establishment seems to be in a very clear-eyed fashion to have sized up. What I find very interesting is the European position in between these two things, because it's not obvious to me that the EU has really developed a coherent response to a world in which, you know, there's a choice to be made. Uh, And that, I think, will be one of the interesting things to follow up is to see, you know, whether the Americans, as they did during the Cold War, are trying to align other pieces of their alliance around this same hard position towards China. Alongside this, from the other side, is the rumbling story of One Belt, One Road. Um, And piece by piece, little bits of that jigsaw fall into place. And last week, it was New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern, who was sort of the poster person for empathetic leadership on the Western democratic model just a few weeks ago, but much less coverage last week, the fact that she said we've looked at it and actually we're on board. So there's that going on too, right? Right round the edges, we saw it in southern Europe more recently. Well, that's what's already dividing the European Union. And I mean, because quite a number of European Union states have effectively signed up to it, most consequentially Italy, because it's the largest of the European Union states that have, and it's clearly caused unhappiness in Germany and France in in Berlin and um, Paris and basically they want to say well we need an EU response to this but the problem here is is first of all the the EU is not capable of making geopolitical decisions and the second problem is is that Germany has already been running its own China policy for years because Germany is actually in terms of supply chains and that side of things more integrated with China than any of the EU economies. Merkel, I think, has been to China pretty much once a year. They have a regular cabinet-level meeting yeah. between the Chinese and the German cabinet. It's an annual thing. So and is it they, fair to say the Germans are still running a sort of late 1990s so the China already, policy? In a, well, they've pulled back too. I mean, they, they've been to. badly burned by the sense that uh, purchases of Mittelstand engineering companies are actually a threat to German autonomy. 
So they've moved into a position which is more like that of Macron. There's this rumblings about industrial policy. But I was going to go back to the one belt, one road. I mean, my sense of the way in which the sort of wonk talk about that has moved as recently as the last couple of weeks is that we're back in a kind of more affirmative mode in the sense that, you know, there was this huge push on to read One Belt, One Road as essentially debt imperialism. as The, the provision of, of loans to the states which couldn't carry them, Sri Lanka became the test case for this. And there's been a recent study out the last couple of weeks which uh, has actually looked in detail at the Chinese handling of a much broader segment of of loans and has shown that the Chinese, like other lenders, are regularly forced to make painful concessions to the people who borrow from them. They've had to write down tens of billions of dollars of loans. And it doesn't, viewed in those terms, look like the massive program of concerted subordination of borrower states, which was the meme that really has you know, dominated the headlines about BRI for the last 18 months or so. So, so is it possible when the New Zealand government says, we've looked at this over the last few months, and actually yeah. it's a better deal than we thought, yes. they're, they're telling they, the truth? Yes, exactly. And, and that they have not found behind the scenes, you know, this sort of ominous threat of Chinese imperialism that so many people thought they could detect there. I think, though, that that doesn't really cut it in Washington because their view is that that this is something that has got the potential to change the balance of power in Eurasia to the United States' detriment. And that is also one of the reasons why they're as concerned as they are about Iran because look at a map and find out where the, um, the belt bit of it has got to go through. And if Iran falls into a position where it is under Chinese-Russia influence, under the Belt and Road Project, and the general lantern westwards of China, then that is a very big problem as far as Washington's concerned. And it's quite striking that this week, I think it was this week, that the US Secretary of State basically cancelled a planned meeting in Germany to go off to Iraq to give assurances about what he considered the new pressures that Iran is placing on Iraq. The Americans of this administration, but I, I don't think it would actually change that much under most democratic presidents, is absolutely obsessed with the Iran question. And I think the reason why they're obsessed with the Iran question is the way that it relates to China's Eurasian strategy. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Another way that this then cuts across Washington politics and domestic politics in the United States is we're just starting to see the beginnings of China featuring in the Democratic presidential nomination race because the person who in the last two weeks has emerged as a very strong favourite, I think many people surprised, Joe Biden turns out to be a much, much more robust candidate than seemed when he was being accused of inappropriate behaviour and so on a few weeks before that. He may be an outlier on this question. And the Trump administration have noticed this. Um, and they're already starting to indicate that they're going to run a kind of playbook back on Biden that they felt was run on Trump and his family over Russia, which is that Biden and particularly his son, Hunter Biden, are in deep with the Chinese. And this could be a huge issue in the presidential election because Biden is not like the other candidates. And he said Biden this week, when he was asked about China, said, 
you know, China's our friend. China is not. Now, most Democrats are not saying that. No, they're not. And um, Chuck Schumer, the New York senator, has persistently been encouraging Trump in this confrontation and basically tweeted this week telling Trump not to back down and stand firm. Now, I think it's not clear how many of the, let's call them the more left, younger Democrats have got a clear position on China. But I think it is the case that the centre of gravity, if you like, in the old establishment within the Democratic Party is more with Trump on this than it is with Biden on this. Which is weird because Biden then is the centrist candidate because, as you said, the younger left people, they they probably want something to take Biden down with. They, they're not many of them comfortable with the thought that he's going to be the candidate. But are they going to use China? It's weird. Yeah, it does seem to me a really um, peculiar shift that's going on, right, where Biden is the centrist and therefore represents the legacy commitment to binding China in as a as a cooperative member and a stakeholder in the global economy, and yet finds himself an outlier in a world in which, in fact, that centre ground has moved very decisively. And I think you're right, Helen, in, in emphasising the degree to which as Schumer, after all, is as mainstream a Democrat as you could possibly imagine, the degree to which they've been willing to line up behind the China position, this is goes well beyond Trump. One thing we haven't spoken about really is the rights piece of this, because in the 1990s, China policy problem in the US, human rights were a key issue, right? In the wake of Tiananmen, they had to be. And I think the explosive force of that has yet really to come to the fore. I mean, so far, we're talking about trade, we're talking about geopolitical competition, but whether or not human rights, especially in light of the extraordinary programme of repression that's going on in Western China, that's another issue, I think, on which the Democrats could find themselves in an extremely uncomfortable position. And specifically, it is at least possible that there is more in the Hunter Biden story than the Donald Trump Jr. story, because he is an investor in the Chinese firm that is supplying the facial recognition technology in Western China. I mean, we don't know enough, and a lot of this is coming from a kind of right Trump attack machine. But it would be deeply ironic if actually the Democrats are more vulnerable to this kind of attack than Trump ever was. Well, I think one of the things that's been made clear by what's happened in the last few weeks around Hunter Biden is something that I think was always there in the 2016 election, is is that China was a really important issue for Trump because it allowed him to tell two stories that he wanted to tell. One was that the Washington establishment, and particularly what he liked to think of as the Clinton wing of it, which I think he would have put Joe Biden into, was corrupt, mm. and that... The second story he wanted to tell was that American manufacturing had been completely hollowed out. And the thing that united those two stories was China. He was basically saying that the you know, the Democrat-led Washington establishment, and obviously at various points it wasn't just the Democrat-led in Trump's rhetoric, it was the Republican-led, it was the whole, the whole lot of them, had basically sold middle America out in order to line their own pockets. And the businesses who supported them's pockets with these agreements with China and enough was enough and I think that was part of the overall narrative that he wanted to tell about what was going on although it was sometimes obviously done in more coherent ways than other times and now he has that story back again he's going to propose himself as the person who's trying to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States whether he can or not is another matter and he's got a perfect line of attack I mean Hillary Clinton has now been replaced by Joe Biden who perfectly serves the position that Hillary Clinton did in the first narrative. And this is why the figure of US Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer has become so pivotal I think to understanding the political economy of the moment right now because he's hugely popular on the sides of the American left precisely because he 
views the trade policy pursued by successive administrations in the 90s and 2000s as the result of special interest manipulation. I mean, he wouldn't go as far as, I think, to call it corruption, but but essentially what dominated were the interests of uh, deal-making investment bankers who thought they could turn, you know, China into their playgrounds. This is the colleague of Robert Rubin, Hank Paulson, both of whom were, especially Hank Paulson, was the ultimate China hand former Treasury Secretary under Bush, Goldman Sachs CEO. And the counterpart to that is this trade warrior figure, Robert Lighthizer, whose career started in the 1980s under Reagan, uh, now is back in the saddle and is generally seen as the hardliner in the trade negotiation with the Chinese. And he enjoys very substantial popularity on the part of what's left of the organized labor wing of the Democratic Party, because he's a man who's seen as standing for the interests of American industry uh, and of US steelmakers, which is, you know, now employ a tiny number of American workers. There's more personal fitness instructors in, in America than there are steel workers. But Robert Lighthizer is the figure who's seen as really their voice in these negotiations. All of which makes Biden's current position really strikingly anomalous in some ways. I mean, the Democrats need to be quite careful what they wish for here. I think that they do. And and I think that the Hunter Biden part of his weakness has also got another dimension, which is the Ukraine part of it. And Hunter Biden's position as a director on the board of of, of an energy company and what looks like it might have been Biden's involvement in stopping an investigation into the activities. When you say Biden, you mean Joe Biden? Yeah. So Joe Biden is in some respects everything that Hillary Clinton was in 2016 from Trump's purposes. I stress in some respects. Yeah, because in others, obviously, he has advantages she did not have. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But in terms of having a candidate to attack who looks like he or she is connected to what can be easily presented as the Washington establishment's failure where China is concerned, and to some extent where Russia is concerned as well, Biden picks fits perfectly. I think on the other hand, we shouldn't exaggerate the significance of these kind of stories to the actual electoral outcome. I mean, I think overall more important will be the condition of the US economy in 2020, which is very hard to call. The Democrats could get lucky. Bad news for the American economy in 2020 will be very good news for them. Uh, And we could be at the tipping point. Again, it won't be driven by the S&P 500 either, which is going to react very, very sensitively to trade news talk. But what we would really need to see is a general turn down in consumer spending, serious credit tightening. And and that, I think, would be a far bigger issue for the Trump administration. These sorts of stories, I mean, we've seen it with Russia and the way in which Russia and the Putin connection to Trump dominated so much of the airtime and the talk in the US. And in the end, I think it's largely consolidates pre-existing camps. It's not something that's going to swing voters one way or the other, I think. Trump needs to deliver some sort of deal with China or a plausible trade war story so that he can go back to his constituents and say, look, I did what I said I was going to do. And I think, you know, the Democrats clearly have house cleaning to do in the sense that the stories of the corruption of the Democratic mainstream are not made up out of thin air. But this isn't, I don't think, going to swing the election one way or the other. But it is possible, isn't it, that China and Russia are different in that for many Americans, the Russian story, historically, Russia was the threat. But it's hard to see what threat Russia posed to them now. But I think there is a a sense that 
you can frame it that China might be about to eat America's lunch. And this is not just sort of of interest to people at the securocrat level. This is a real story for middle America. It's at least possible that a skillful politician, as Helen said, can weave the two together. And that's not true with the Russia one. No, I think think that that is the case. And the reason why it's the case is is because there clearly was a significant impact on US manufacturing jobs that came from China. You can argue about what the scale of it was. Some people would put it in the several millions. I think the Federal Reserve puts it at about 600,000 job losses. But you can't deny that something happened and that that's something that happened in terms of manufacturing jobs in towns in the middle of America has had dire social consequences. I think though that the vulnerability for Trump is actually that he can't be confrontational with Iran without oil prices going up and that he's very very nervous about oil prices. Every time they get a little bit more than where they've been the previous month then he's tweeting away at OPEC telling them that they've got to come down but he can't have a confrontation with Iran without them going up. I agree about the significance of the China story in general. China per se, I'm just not convinced that the entanglements of the Biden family in it are really going to run that well. The Chinese also tried to corrupt the Trump entourage early on in the Trump administration. But the impact of China in general is really felt. And I think the reports that come back from candidates who are already making bids for electoral support in the Midwest do point to the fact that this is something that has affected everyone. To that extent, it's more like the Japan shock of the 80s and 90s, where you have a similar visceral, and it's not without racial elements, of course. This is the yellow peril uh, reinvented, and that has an echo that really does run through. And it accounts, I think, for the fact that the Democrats have been so willing to sign up to the anti-Chinese position. I mean, it's really an extraordinary turnaround in the climate in Washington both in trade and security policy circles in the space of 18 months and going deep into the fabric of American society. We'll tweet links to Adam's fantastic blog. Uh, You can find all of that at tppodcast underscore. And when Adam's next back, we will catch up with him. On Thursday, we're going to be talking to Tom Holland about ancient Rome and politics today. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Great. I think that was good. I learned a lot. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.